salsita picante. Esto tiene un poco de pepinos angustidos que nunca, nunca lo he servido con, con, con frijoles negros, pero parece que puede ser una buena talla. ¿Ya? Esto tiene ajo, esto tiene mucha cebollita, esto tiene los choricitos. That was a little audio from the kitchen of Grotto's restaurant in Havana, where the chef was busy putting his own touch on black beans and rice and pork, the pillars of Cuban cuisine. I grew up on the stuff in South Florida, and if you ever want to flood me with involuntary memory, skip the Madeleine and just go straight to the number one roast pork special from El Cibonet in Key West. But the guest on this episode, Nancy Sapero does not want to add a little twist to the Cuban classics. She wants to tear up the whole menu. Her family has actually been running a Paladar home kitchen themselves in Havana for generations. But she's one of these young Cubans, these bright revolutionaries, asking for something different from her country and her culture. Less disease, less poverty, more self-care, which for her means cooking vegan, right in step with her art and activism against racism and misogyny and homophobia. She joined me for Espresso back in February to talk about social justice and the Cuban vegans' eternal hunt for chia seeds. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you are listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Let's check some levels. Tell me, tell me what you had for breakfast today. Well, I got some papaya. You got some papaya? Yes. Okay. And also black tea. Is that like a fruta bomba thing or just the papaya? Uh, fruta bomba. We oh. call it fruta bomba. Okay. Yes. Everybody's crazy about that fruta bomba here. I love it. Well, this is one of the great privileges of, of living in Cuba is you got fruit all the time. Well, but we don't have all the fruit mm. all the time. Okay. So when we have one, we need to we need to take it. Yeah. <laughs> when you see the fruit, you got to get it because yes. you never know when it'll be available again. Exactly. Nancy, I have so many questions for you. Okay. Let's start with your uh, your profession. You are a cook, a caterer, a chef. How do you um, define yourself? Well. We need to uh, redefine that because I am not just a cook. First of all, of all, I am a, I'm a, I'm an artist. I'm a visual artist. Right. I'm a painter. I'm a printmaker. I have always cooked because it's my family profession. Okay, so you were born into In, cooking. Exactly. So um, I've learned uh, how to cook, how to cut things very young. And I also work uh, in my uh, father's business. What is that business? What we call here a paladar uh, and, and also cafeteria. Okay. okay. So it's like a, a home-based kitchen. Exactly. That people will come from the neighborhood and come and eat at. Exactly. And at the same time, I, I, I do my art. I paint. I do my uh, woodcut and stuff. And I'm also an activist. Role number three. Mm-hmm. Cook, artist, activist. All right. Well, let's let's start with veganism. Why did you make that change? Was it overnight? Was it a slow evolution in your consciousness? I was uh, making this personal research about how to 
take care about myself, paying attention to the big people in my family and the, the health issues they started to um the big you mean like obese people in your family yes my my grandmother uh my father my my aunties and mother i started to look at the the way their lifestyle in general what did you find when you looked well when i i find that in general in my family we don't used to do too much exercise for instance okay so they're not exercising enough no exactly mm. or go out and and take fresh air uh some of them smoke a lot and they they eat a lot of meat they build a, a culture around the culture of eating meat is exactly i realized that those that are more involved in that meat dependence Mm-hmm. are those which more diabetes. So just anecdotally in your family, people who are eating more meat mm-hmm. were also having diabetes and it's and, a big problem uh, in Cuba. Yes, yes. So, you know, when I came down here the first time was during the special period and meat was a luxury. Mm-hmm. It's like a privilege to be able to eat meat. And now, yes. you know, fortunately, there's mm-hmm. like people have more choices of the food they can eat. But there's a cost, right? Yes, <laughs> I think it is related with the the culture, how we learn to eat, or, or what they, our elders, taught us how uh, to eat, and the, who colonized the country, and and brought the uh, gastronomic culture to us. Yeah. But I think that nowadays is also a relationship with this fact. In the special period, so many families wasn't able to get meat enough to feed their families. So, so now they're going uh, like overboard. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's like now we have it. Now we're going to take it and we're going to take it the most. And every day is pork Friday. Or exactly. Something. And um, a lot of chicken. A lot and of fry, chicken. And a lot of frying stuff. A lot of fried foods. What do you, the paladar, I assume the paladar is not gone vegan. Your family is Ma, still no, cooking. No, 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 no. <laughs> so what are they cooking there? Like what's the, is it all like meat dishes, super meat it's, heavy? It's basically um, traditional Cuban food or other things that are not uh, properly Cuban but are popular uh, to eat here, like pasta and... Yeah, Cubans uh, are crazy about Italian food. Yes. So you got some pasta. Yes, we have stuff. especially... Uh, it's based Italian, but it's very local, you know. Very Cuban style. This, yes, this Cuban style. Cuban. What makes a Cuban-Italian dish? It's like pasta with uh, pork chunks or something, or <laughs> I don't know. Yes, and for instance, my grandfather... He used to put sweet potato, okay. cooked sweet potato with spaghetti. When we had spaghetti, it was mandatory to put some sweet potato okay. for him. I mean, you know, what they say with the name for Cuban food, comida criolla, right? Uh-huh. It's mixed. <laughs> like, exactly. It's always been mixed. Exactly. How was that conversation with your family when you said, listen, I'm looking around and I see a lot of bad health and I... Mm-hmm. I'm choosing something different for myself. Did they take it personally? Or mm. Was it like an attack on, th- this is their culture, their food, their livelihood? It is hard for them to listen 
to be open to the conversation in general and also to even think about to change their diet, their lifestyle about food. Anyway, I am not telling people that became vegan. You're not telling them they have to become vegan. Yes. I'm just sharing what I've learned about to include more more vegetables, more fruits, less sugar, not that much rice, <laughs> and obviously not that much meat and not that much fried stuff. This I feels th- like a very hard thing to suggest to not just your family, but any Cuban. Yes, it is, it is hard. Each one need to understand the and the stuff in their own in their own time, their own time, yeah. their own ways. Also, what are some of the challenges about maintaining veganism in Cuba? I mean, access to certain ingredients must be top of the list. No, that is a big challenge. In part, I think that uh, is for that reason. I am not telling people like you need to uh, be vegan. Because maybe they won't have the ability or the, you know, the, uh, the focus that you do to be able to find the things you need. Exactly. What are you missing here in Cuba? Because we need to work. We begin here, living here. We need to hustle a lot to uh, get most of the things we have. And there are things that we don't get. Like what? Like seeds, some seeds. And... And dried fruits, which are important in a, a vegan diet. Dried fruit. Like, let's say, chia seeds. Chia seeds. Uh-huh. Or nuts. Those things have to be imported. Yes. And They're also, expensive. as well, we don't, we don't have the information or, or the culture. We meet some things that we do have, like uh, pumpkin seeds. Mm-hmm. Because they don't sell these in the markets here, but... You can get it by yourself from the pumpkin, right? Right. And dry it and and consume it. But it is a lot of work. There needs to be a market for that. That is necessary. This is related with with what we was just talking before about to push a little bit to change something. Mm -hmm. I know that by myself, I cannot change the whole people way of thinking. But if we start to talk more about these subjects maybe yeah. someday Just we, we're gonna start as a country to to see the necessity of grow some kind of things or talk about some kind of things related with nutrition i mean it's interesting veganism and activism seem very they actually seem pretty related are you finding that too like in your activist circles are are there more people who are making that choice or is it easier to, to have those conversations? Yes. In activism, when you're fighting for justice, mm-hmm. in some way, you're going to find that many of the struggles are related mm-hmm. because the oppressions affect everybody at some point. I mean, I'm talking about the queer community. I'm talking about the African diaspora. I'm talking about women. For instance, in my community, we are mostly black or African descendant people, also feminists and also queer people. Mm-hmm. And when I talk to my group about food and the necessity to eat better, I'm talking about self-care. 
And I think for a black and queer community, this is a subject we need to embrace in general, not just about food, self-care, self-love. Because a lot of the issues that the outside world is putting on you are you kind of internalize and you don't take care of yourself in the right way or you're not able to. Everything is um, focused on let us know that we are not enough, that we are not worthy, that we, we need to work harder to find things, to get things, or to have the right to, you know? Yeah. And we, many people, believe it. Right. Even, even black and queer people believe what society is telling them about themselves. Yes, because it's like what they say is like what is established. So that's why activism and that's why thinkers and that's why artists uh, with a political vision are necessary because these people are working to make the change visible even for people who are not involved in this kind of meetings in the kind of places where this conversation has place. What we do is like create sceneries to discuss these mm-hmm. these subjects and not just discuss verbally but also create the environment well where people can feel that the change is not just a theory but a, a real possibility so you're actually trying to make the new society that you're aiming for in in these communities in this in these meetings or just make space for it I'm trying, we are trying, it's not just me, yeah. to, to make a possible, f- positive future real now. It's important to talk about what we're going to have or what we could have by working hard. But it's also important to start right here, right now, to live, yeah. to feel our importance in our health and see that our place in the world is important, is necessary, is real. There is activism in the United States. There are people who are fighting the same fight uh, that you're fighting, probably in some of the same ways. It feels different in Cuba because you're in a country that has already solved all the problems. You know, It has a revolution mm-hmm. where they said, oh, this is a revolution for black people. This is a revolution for equality and justice. I mean, it's just kind of weird to be doing this work in Cuba where the government is sort of saying that they already fixed it, right? Mm. Yes. These kind of subjects come from so long in time. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, necessary, necessary related to what we are doing right now or 60 years ago. Got it. This shit happened a long time before the revolution. And not just in this country. It's a global uh, mm. thing. I do think that the revolution has done a lot for the transformation. And it's a big platform to do what we are doing now. Mm-hmm. But this same word, revolution, means the work never is totally done. Yeah. This was definitely not a vegan revolution, for example. <laughs> so, no, it's... so these conversations keep evolving then. One part of your activism, obviously, is around queer issues. Cuba's in some kind of 
crazy place now with like, was it Article 68 last year where they said that, okay, we're going to make gay marriage legal and write it into the Constitution. And then Mm -hmm. there was a huge backlash. It seems like a really intense time for activism. Where are we at now in Cuba with this? Well, we keep fighting on it in general as a human right. You know, that's what most people in the community think and feel. I stand with the community uh, for this cause. I even was in the march. You were marching, yeah. In, uh, in ele- May 11 last year. Even when I, in my own person, don't believe in marriage as a... As an institution? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. So you're not going to get married to your partner. But there's rights that go into that. Maybe you don't want to get married, but... You know, if you're in a same-sex relationship, you want to be able to visit them at the hospital to inherit. Exactly. You know, to to share all the things that you need to share to share a life, right? Exactly. And and it's also related with uh, heritage and a lot of stuff. And even if this is a right, because it is a right for straight people, Mm -hmm. uh, we don't even need to be... Asking for it doesn't make sense. I mean, it's 2020. <laughs> it's 2020. It's 2020. I mean, I remember when I was younger, in the 90s, when I was a child, every year that uh, started with the two was something of science fiction. <laughs> right. And right. we are living that science fiction we, This w- is the future. Now. So... I don't think we need to to still fighting for things that most of the people in the world already understood are necessary, important for so many people. Yeah. One of the things that really shocked me, I guess, about the fight around gay marriage was the rise of the evangelical church here and the power that they had, which is not something that I'm familiar with in Cuba seems like a new dynamic. You have a new enemy here. Mm-hmm. I agree with, with you. I just realized the power they have. Was it a surprise? Yeah, I wasn't expecting this. But once it just happened, I, I'm like, okay, it made sense. Because they have power in the whole world. Mm-hmm. They have economic power and, and also they manipulate a lot the popular conscience mm-hmm. you know so the the propaganda that they use i have seen propaganda that is even aggressive mm-hmm. like children in gay family are insecure unhappy just and it's the same bullshit confused everywhere yeah that's i mean you're right it is and, a global and they are posting and paying this stuff in the whole city. Wow. So that is a lot. But, you know, what you were saying, that it's part of a global movement and you recognize the power that this kind of religious homophobia has. Mm -hmm. It is a very similar playbook. I'm sure they were communicating with people in the United States because that's the same crap you hear there, too. What's the Afro-Cuban religious relationship to homosexuality? Like, is homophobia baked into Santeria and the other Mm. Afro-Cuban religions? That's an interesting question. I don't know if... I I was about to say that every religion I know 
has an, a homophobic base, but I'm not really sure about it. What I think is that we people are racist. We people are homophobic. We people are misogynist. And we people rule religion practice. So it's not in the text. The Santero doesn't have to be racist or homophobic, but if they are, then that's going to come out in the religion. I think so. I think uh, whatever you are inside, whatever way your family raised you, you're going to put that in your practice, religious or not. Here, women are not allowed to do a lot of stuff, and women are a backbone in this religion as in life. Right. You know? But anyway, they tell us, We cannot do several stuff. However, in countries like Nigeria, where the religion actually was born, women are able to do important things and, and even to have important crucial information. That's interesting. We were having a conversation about how Afro-Cuban religion kind of stopped evolving like because it was so secret and so forbidden that it had to stay a certain way. Whereas in Nigeria, it just has kept evolving and maybe modernized a little. So mm. they can actually, so women are involved in, in ways that feel true to 2020, for example. Mm -hmm. I think we women are dangerous or they think we are dangerous. Maybe we are dangerous. We are too much powerful. There's a reason why they're trying to exclude you. I think so. Fear. Talk about 2020 as the year of the future. I mean, what is your hope for Cuba? Let's say 2030. Describe to me the Cuba that you want to be living in. Oh, well, what I wish for this country is to be open. I wish freedom, heart freedom, mind freedom. I wish we're, we, we won't be blockaded. End of the embargo. Exactly. But not just that kind of blockade. That's an important point. But we, maybe because of this same reason and many others, we, I think we are blockade, blockaded ourselves. We have a lot of fears. I want, I want freedom. I'm talking about here inside. Inside each one of us. It's so easy for us to say no, to say we can't. Even myself, sometimes we have got so many no's in life. We need to be positive and we need to work. What do you need to become more free? Like what's, what's holding you back? Is it? I am not living the life I want to live. I'm working for it. That's what I do. I work hard for living the life I want, living the life I deserve. I think I am not trying hard enough. I need to work harder because the life I deserve, the, the life I want, need to be more easy. You know, why do I need to fight for being recognized as the human being I, I am, for being women and queer and black and Cuban? I don't need to fight for it, but I need to fight for it. So this is not the life I want. This is the life I, I have, and I work hard to enjoy my life, being my life, 
which it is. But I know that I deserve more. And when I when I am saying I, I'm talking about my mother, I'm talking about my aunts, I'm talking about my friends and lovers and my brother, my niece, you know, about my community in general, about my whole country, because all of us uh, deserve something better as a country. Let me change uh, direction and, and ask you, now that you're cooking for your activist groups, for, uh, mm -hmm. for friends and cooking and vegan, like give me a, a dish or two that you're most proud of that feels really Cuban, but is also super vegan. Ooh, well, I, I am not sure if this is Cuban, but is very part of the Cuban food meatballs. Meatballs. Meatballs or not meatballs. Un, un meatballs. Un meatballs. Uh, okay. Well, all right. I'm proud of it, of them, because people love them, uh, have been successful. So is it like soy or what do you? I use lentils. Lentils. All right. Lentils, which are very important food a lot of properties it has become popular among the people that, that, that hire us for cook or buy our stuff or even in the spaces where you share the food mm -hmm. so you're, you're actually running you'll do vegan catering for people what we do is to bring food to uh events is it a goal to like open a restaurant Or would that take over too much of, you have so many things going on? Uh, I think it is. Yes, I think so. I think so. I like to. Do you uh, interact? I mean, I imagine that there's a, a much higher percentage of vegans maybe among the foreign tourists or visitors. Mm -hmm. If you had a vegan restaurant in Old Havana, you would probably make some people very happy. Yes, <laughs> I know. I know. I know. People have, have called me even for breakfast. That is a very Cuban thing. There's a lot of meat in a, in a breakfast that you might get served here. Yeah. Yes. And many of the clients we have had are tourists, uh, foreign students, but also Cuban people. But they are not uh, properly vegan or vegetarian, but people are willing to learn, mm. I think. Or the food's good. <laughs> anyway well that doesn't hurt <laughs> exactly and i think they they want to to learn different things to taste different things and to share different things uh it is a radical new concept i guess for havana cuisine so they would be interested in kind of maybe curious about checking it out all right well thank you uh so much for taking the time to come out and for being one of those changes in the world that's going to end in a in a big science fiction future. Mm -hmm. Good things. Yeah. All right, Nancy. Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. I appreciate it too. The Trip from Robes and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Alexa Van Sickle is our online editor. Theme music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Robes and Kingdoms. Production assistance by Claudia Fernandez. And thanks always to my old friend who knows everything and everyone in Havana, Darcy Fernandez. Next up on this feed on Thursday, we are back to re-releasing for the first time on Apple and Spotify our Nairobi episodes. The next one starts with the Boda Boda, that ubiquitous moto taxi of East Africa. 
it is the best way to see Nairobi, to cut through traffic, and to really feel alive, because you seem to be batting your eyelashes at death at every intersection. And really, it's the best way to get from Karen, the neighborhood in the hills, to the crosstown house of Shravan Vityarthi, a documentary filmmaker with an incredible story to tell. Me and Shravan, well, we're drinking Johnny Walker Black, the unofficial official drink of South Asians in Africa, and we are drinking a lot of it. We will meet you there. <laughs> 